So as uh, one of my general themes is to make a point of trying to visit other monasteries every year, which has been a bit difficult because of the pandemic and travel restrictions. So it's a great pleasure to be able to do so with no particular thing in mind, no ceremony, no event, just to share presence, just to be around sheer presence. Uh, not even It's not even retreat, it's not a lot of teaching. I haven't got anything exceptionally different to say tonight, I assure you. <laughs> but uh, there's actually a lot happens in just sharing presence, in not really having a particular pointed aim. It's picking up, listening, tuning in, adjusting, being in a context, and letting your context have it work upon you have its effects upon you. Something I always appreciate about uh, Aruna Ratanagiri is this lovely mixture between this very empty space around uh, and just this slightly rolling uh, landscape with a simple dry stone walls. It's kind of very simple, open. When I come up here, I also notice, even though it's quite a small place, it's amazing how much space there is in it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you measure it with a tape measure, it wouldn't look that big. But visually, there's a lot of space in it. It's not cluttered. And you know, when we come through the back uh, gate, and there's just a lot of gravel and a few plants, a lot of empty space. So it fits in with the, with the theme of the situation. It's not full of stuff. You're not constantly being bombarded with stuff. Grab your eye or think about or fiddle with. And yet, it's intelligent because it's careful. You get a sense it's carefully spaced. It's not a space of, um, there's nobody here, there's no cultivation. It's a space of care. And you pick that up. Yes, I do. And so you get these messages coming from the environment. Mm. And this is one of the big uh, themes of practice and training is suitable environment. Because what the environment does is what we can't do through our own willpower. You, you just receive it and it shapes you and it molds you and it cools you and it steers you and it allows you and encourages you. The environment does, and there are different qualities in this in, in this environment. But you're within it. Probably the most significant quality is the people, of course, because everything comes out of that. And yet, so people over the years have developed this situation. They put their practice into the situation. Those of us who come later pick up the results of that. And we put our bit into it, so we all contribute to and benefit from the environment that's been moulded by people's careful attention. That's really the theme of the of the transmission. I guess, like most people, my own um, introduction to Buddhism came through meditation or through trying to meditate. Anyway, and 
Yeah, I think it's it's very common these days. Meditation, the thing to do, and you've got different styles and techniques uh, from extremely refined attention on points, uh, sustained retreats to just kind of just being open and empty and relaxing everything. Uh, but <laughs> what the Buddha presented was an environment. <laughs> Not something we do, not single focus. Mm. Even a focus on relaxing everything is still my decision, a single focus. And what the Buddha generated was a field. Yeah. And you can, you can sit in it, you walk in it, you contribute to it, it shapes you, it molds you, you put something back into it. Because that's the reality of what uh, we're living in. We have also our own intimate environment, which you could ascribe to the entire autonomous nervous system, which the body has, which carries all kinds of reflexes that we have no say over. And that's replicated in the nature of the, of the chitta, the mind, which is carrying huge amount of karmic potentials, possibilities that often the person doesn't really have much of a clue about. It's all happening, you know, like the software happening underneath, you know, the program of the computer. You don't know what's going on, you know. And so the unawakened or the one who is not properly instructed thinks, oh, I'll just go in there and do the thing. I'll do the practice. I'll put a lot of effort into the practice. Uh, and it's willpower. Because that's what the person knows what to do, whether the willpower is strong fluttering, whatever it is, it's still my willpower. However gentle it is, it's still mine, and I decide to do it. And uh, that's all the person can do as an individual. Whatever they do, it's still that. And that's certainly, it's an aspect that we can use but <laughs> if you think that's the only thing we can use, we're very much uh, straying from the teaching of the Buddha. You know, it's really it's about using our personal willpower to direct us towards environments, situations that will bring out qualities that we were not aware of or we only half knew, or we didn't think were that important. And they would tend to calm or restrain qualities we thought, oh, this is normal, this is just what I like to do, this is fine, I'll just do this. And we never really examined them. You know? So we just you know, basically take our personal package down the road a bit and put it in a so-called Buddhist situation. And uh, people could do that for years and in some ways get quite impressive results, but they don't ever get beyond the person. And sometimes people go disastrously wrong you know, with the feeling of the more effort I put into, the more willpower I use, then, you know, this is it and uh, we'll get there. And such people often blow a fuse somewhere, they break down or they crack up or they lose balance. Because we have to remember that the personal will is only one 
portion of what we have access to or can have access to. And the humility of our practice is to know that, and the wisdom of our practice is to know, okay, I need to put it there. I need to put myself and listen and pick up and wait and tune in. Yeah, this is training. Like most people want the one shot, the one thing to do, one of the technique, the, the slogan, the, the, the thing, the, the retreat, the one hit that you can do, simple, you can do this and it'll get you there. Uh, yeah. Or whatever it is, you know. But if you look in the, uh, the suttas, you see there's a whole raft of trainings, practices, teachings, inclinations. And they're basically, the theme they're all in moving towards is undoing these powerful reflexes called asawa. And asawa literally means something like a, an outflow or inflow, a corruption, sort of like a disease where the energy of the citta spills out. Something breaks into the heart and energy just goes rushing out. And this is like uh, not some freak occurrence. It's like, this is what's happening for people. (laughs) Like, oh, you know, pretty much all the time. But because we're so used to it and we we have avenues to, to send those, outflows down, we, we don't make much of it. It's the outflow of sensuality. So, you know, you're feeling a bit restless, do something, drink something, eat something, watch something, fiddle with something, switch on a screen. Yeah, of course, it's a problem. Not against the precepts. So normal, just that, into some sense object. Asava of becoming, planning my future, where I'm going to be next. The next thing is going to happen to-do lists, uh, strategies, planning, continuity, having been this, I will be that. And, uh, you know, that's a big part of people's lives, isn't it? In lay life, that's, that's really encouraged and often high speed. Mm-hmm. So this one is such a powerful reflex, you know, and to, to get onto something. And then we can think, well, what we'll do is just, uh, just switch it all off. Got this called vibhava, which is another aspect of that, where we avoid responsibility. I don't want to be anything. I don't want to become anything. I don't want to have a future. You know, say, so, no, no, that's not quite it either. The future arises from the qualities of mind that you linger in has to arise from the qualities of mind that you linger in. Now, if you're lingering in a quality of mind that's rushing on with plans, that's where you go. If you're lingering in the quality of the mind that doesn't want to be bothered with anything, that's where you go. <laughs> and there's inhalationism, nihilism, and constant um, pursuit of goals. So this reflex is moving the mind around and of course that can go into meditation. I remember we had a, a Samanera at one time, he's now left, and he wanted to get in just the, the cessation, what he was looking for, 
So he didn't really want to participate in anything other than just the basic duties. And he was trying to get his mind to get into cessation. So he's doing this and doing this and doing this. And then one day he found himself, just realized he'd just come out of the, out of the kitchen and he got a half empty jar of peanut butter in his hand and he'd eaten the other half jar of peanut butter and he had no recollection of doing it. You know, he was honest enough to say, I think I've done something. He also realized I was completely out of it. You know, he'd, he'd actually broken something in his awareness, gone down into the basement, got a jar of peanut butter, and had half a jar of peanut with no awareness of it. Yeah, he got cessational, right? <laughs> Be careful what you wish for. <laughs> but, so, we had to get, you know, psychiatric help and, you know, gradually patch him up again and that was the end of that <laughs> that was the end of the holy life for him I mean he's okay he recovered but you know these are sensitive systems these are sensitive systems you know if you take the body as an example because then when you recognize what how people can use their bodies and that gives you a good model of the kind of things to avoid doing and to tune into when you're cultivating your mind. And also you can use the same thing like when you're living in a situation, really get a sense of it becomes in a way another map of how you practice. Now, you know, say you, you, your body, you want to get your body fit or you want to get your body strong, you get some people who want to pump iron all the time. You know, and then they get hyped up, but maybe they just break some sinews or something like that. Or people like to do running and they bash their knees out so their knees can't work anymore. You know, they put so much effort into one particular part without looking over the whole thing. Or you get people who can be good at doing particularly yoga asanas and they develop hinge points in their bodies so some points are extremely flexible the others are not because they always develop one particular aspect and uh, you know we, we, we keep putting pressure on particular points in the body with the idea of this is not going to make it fit and strong, healthy, supple uh, personally I had a lot of um, physical problems, back problems, through willfulness, through carrying weights I shouldn't have been carrying, through throwing my body around I shouldn't have done. I was constantly, you know, overdoing it. And then doing yoga exercises, which, yeah, were good, but they were putting more strain on the areas that didn't need any more strain. What I didn't do was get a sense of the body as a as an intelligent entity that you have to listen to and work with. And the thing that really helped was doing um, some qigong. And that sounds like a lot of doing, but most of it is just sort of standing with very little movement at all. Very small, gentle movements. But what it does is the whole body, you listen to the whole body as you just do small movements. This isn't, going to, this isn't going to do anything. This is kind of this is for kids, isn't it? This is old women do this, surely. These old Chinese women doing this kind of thing, pathetic. 
Okay. Well, okay, I'll do it then. Oh. Oh. Oh, something's happening in my back. Oh, shoulder dropped. Oh, something opened up. <laughs> and uh, within a few weeks of doing that, the body cured itself. Because instead of me deciding what it needed and putting effort on certain points, just said, go to the whole body and stand. Feel the whole body standing and just do some very small movements that encourage connectivity. Encourage everything to be connected. No particular point, but everything connected. And just let energy move through it. Not powerful energy, not thrusting energy, but just gentle energy moving through the whole connectivity. Connection. When you get this analogy, and I'm not, not suggesting you have to do Qigong, but I'm using this analogy because this is the way we should work with our lives. You know, connect it all. The people you live with, the duties you're doing, your physical health, yeah. Where you're getting the signals in your mind, where, where there's, you know, energies that are too powerful. So it becomes, everything's connected, everything then will come into balance. Because there is an intelligence, and most of it's not in our heads, not in our willpower. Not the bit that we can decide, that we can learn and figure out. A lot of this is non-conceptual, embodied intelligence. And it knows what to do. And most of the time we ignore it. Now, one, if you want to have one thing to bear in mind, think of a quality called Yoni So Manisikara, which literally means something, attention that is turned towards the source. Where are you coming from? What's the result of this? Where, is it, why, where does this happen? Because this is beginning to reveal reflexes that we never question. We, we just do them. You know, we just go for it, or we stop, or we look away. This is where these asks of a lie. And one famous uh, teaching, he says, that this is the way you deal with these asava, these powerful psychological, psychosomatic, and embodied reflexes. The main thing is you cultivate deep attention, or wise attention, or careful attention. You only saw many cigars. You set that up. And he says, then you can use a number of means. Seeing, directly seeing, who's this? Uh, restraining. Restraining a reflex. Not, not suppressing, just restraining it. Slowly. Just linger. Just go slowly. Just wait. Are you careful with that? Or you just jump, restrain. Avoid. Yeah. You know what happens when you put your mind into that, you get lost. Avoid. Avoid. Avoid the topic. Avoid the screen. Avoid that. That where you realize unskillful states just come rushing up and take over. You get engrossed, you get obsessed, you get 
swept away. You can feel the reflex immediately kicks in and you're rushing out. Avoid. Use. Use things carefully. Use your bowl, your robes. Use your duty. Use your living quarters carefully. It's a sense in which you're cultivating a relationship rather than an independent will moving around in a world that it's only half connected to. Our center now is in the relationship to what we're working with, to the physical requisites, to the um, resources that we're given, our robes, our bowl, our kutis, to our other summoners that we're living with, to the lay people, so forth. It's always relational. Use it carefully. Don't abuse, don't misuse, don't neglect. Everything is to be done with a sense of conscience and concern. Making food, right? If you're in the kitchen, it's a layman, prepare the food for the sangha and offer it. Do that duty to it. Don't nibble the food while you're cooking the food. That's not appropriate. Because we're making an offering. This isn't a snack. When the food's finished, don't eat the leftovers. If you've had your food, that's it. Better to throw it away than to have nibbly habits. <laughs> Use it carefully. This is dana. Uh, it's not snacks. This is the faith and the generosity made into material substance. We must treat that with respect. Reflecting like this, you train yourself. You train those reflexes, which don't seem to be that much of a problem, just, ah, why not, you know. No. As soon as you notice a reflex, a compulsion, with wise attention, you say, wait a minute, what's necessary here? Restrain. Use carefully. Look into it. Apply deep attention. Endure. Bear with. Give yourself no deadlines. You know. And for that, moderate your practice so you're never kind of like a, a strain point. You realize we're not dealing with sprints here. We're looking at a marathon. Perhaps even that still gives you too much of an idea there'll be an end to it. <laughs> so we're looking at bearing with. You've got to keep the temperature of your practice not at white heat, <laughs> but at steady, steady progress. Then you can bear with and you've got some, some space, you know, you're not straining. And then the, the mind that's kind of supple, light, malleable, rather than rigid or forced, is the optimal standard. And that quality can bear with things because it's not brittle, it's not impetuous. What is it that can bear with? Yeah, it's quality, like, like water. Eliminate, put aside, don't follow trains of thought that are going nowhere useful. 
withdraw your energy. And realize that everything we do takes energy. So everything we do takes energy. So you sometimes you get these slogans like make no effort. Well, but that took effort to say that, didn't it? <laughs> right? Energy is a constant. So right effort is where do you put your energy? It doesn't mean you've got to constantly push. It means everything you do, every thought takes energy. Where do you send it? How do you handle that energy? Yeah. It takes energy to just get out of bed in the morning. It takes energy to clean your teeth. It takes energy to eat a meal. So carefully, you know, using energy and not wasting it. And the nature of these reflexes as such is so ingrained that we don't even realize it. This stuff that, you know, the mind that we're squandering energy as a habit. Needless proliferation, needless speculation. Um, I think certainly for the first 20 or years of my life, and perhaps longer, most of my energy was just on distraction. Going on distraction. Somewhere else. Travelling to go somewhere else. You know, read a book to be somewhere else. Somewhere else. Somewhere else. Always going out. Somewhere else. Energy, energy, energy. And so you think, bring it back. Otherwise you fostering a habit of the mind running out as the norm, running out of speculation, running out of fantasy, running out into ideas. And then when you think, oh, I'll just sit still and meditate, <laughs> what happens? It keeps going. So it's elimination is not using a chopper, an axe. It's about learning how to take your energy back from the thinking process when it's not needed and then move it forward when it is needed. How much is needed? That's what you've got to know. That's your field work. How much is needed? And sometimes it's up to when you're in a group. That's the beauty of the group. Is it, you know, we can all contribute a bit. So I don't need to say this because he's already said it. I don't need to say that because the adjunct said it. I just say this bit. Yeah. We listen. What's necessary to say or think or add to? It's not necessary. Keep it in store. Bring it back into your body. Then it will build up. And he said, fine, this is how you cultivate a factor's awakening. And if I went into those, this would be a very long talk. But all of these 
careful processes of handling, checking, restraining, avoiding, encouraging, moving forward, yeah, looking clearly. They're all the massaging and the moulding by circumstance, by acting on different aspects of how we behave and what affects us. To the spoon in the hand, yeah, to the thought in the mind, internally, externally, you cover it all. So it's all connected. And what supervises is this quality called deep attention or wise attention. And one feature of this, um, in my view, is it needs to be quite wide-ranging in order to pick up the whole field of our mind, our emotions, our imaginations, our responses, our, our conscious efforts, there are unconscious reflexes, uh, the welfare of other people, our own welfare, our relationships with others, our sense of purpose, personal purpose, our sense of harmony, you're covering it all. You think attention is just as pinpointing. It's often what people imagine attention to be, like a narrow focus on a particular point, where you almost mentally furrow your brow when you do it. That's one kind of attention. But you only so many sikara. It has to be wider than that in order to pick up the whole field rather than a particular point. Because as I'm trying to say, if you focus on one particular point, this is like the person who develops strong biceps, but they've ignored their legs. Or the person who's developed a strong, supple back posture in yoga, but their knees are shot. Yeah. Or the person's got a lot of willpower in one direction. You know, they're very good at studying, but they can't listen to anybody else. Because, you know, they've only got one thing. They've got no breadth to it. And so deep attention avoids that by supervising the whole field. An example, an analogy of that I'd like to offer is in Chittas Monastery, we have a gifted quite a sizable piece of land which has a stream and an upland area so the stream runs along a valley and there's quite a steep bank comes up it climbs for a you know, hundred feet or so graduated bank and there's a heathland on top of it and we have cooties up there this, uh, this piece of land and uh, so that had been there that was part of the landscape And after the Second World War, when aerial photography came in, people flying over there could see these outlines of uh, old ramparts and ditches on the top of that piece of land. And they looked at, they could see this pattern of raised ramparts and ditches. That's an old fort. Nobody'd ever noticed it. Because when you're walking around on the ground, you don't see it. You just earth, you see trees, you see earth, you see heather, you might see a rabbit. You don't see an Iron Age fort because you're right on top of it. You're looking, I can't see it. You go 150 feet up, 
stands out because you, you see the patterns of the land. So once they saw that, you know, they go down, investigate, and dig in. Oh yeah, look, some, they found some old, um, you know, spearheads and things like that. This is probably 500 BC. And it'd been there all that time, and nobody, nobody knew it was there. Nobody could see it because you're too close to it. You're on top of it. <laughs> yeah. So when we have unwise attention, we go right into something like that. You know, you know? and we think it's the object. We're going to do this, and what that doesn't reveal is the willpower or the mind that's directing it. And why? You you step back. Oh yeah. I could see that. uh, Suddenly realize this underlying reflex to get absorbed into that particular thing. Or to get offended by that particular thing. I see the reflex now because I'm no longer absorbed in the object. And this is what wise attention does. And the Buddha said, this is the one thing that's of most importance. Now, often people like to talk about mindfulness as being the one thing, but it isn't. It says if you get careful attention, right attention, then you get right attitude, right speech, right mindfulness, right concentration. If you get wrong attention, you get wrong mindfulness, wrong concentration. (laughs) So it's the supervisor. Now when you come to do what we call meditation, whatever that is, you know, <laughs> it's using that same quality. It's based on that same quality. And why is attention, as you're listening, mind is spread wide, it's not running out, it's not running in, it's not catching anything in particular. Just feeling where the reflexes are, where the resistances are, where the urges are, just steadying, spreading over the entire bodily form, resting in that. Waiting for the intelligence of the mind to begin to speak, except it's not verbal. We're dealing with an intelligent system. You listen widely, open widely, you get a kind of a, a signal from the entire system. The entire system gives you a signal. It's, it's, not, a, it's not words. It's a and that gives you the indication of where you should place your mindfulness so deep attention, wise attention comes before mindfulness and directs it in the right way if it's not directed by wise attention you get wrong mindfulness and you get obsessive on a particular point you don't actually deal with the asanas running away in the background. Yeah. Instead you're caught up. Oh, I can really do this, it's great. 
and you're getting more obsessive. And so this is wrong mindfulness, wrong concentration. You get concentrated, but it's uh, it's not releasing anything. When you realize what you're trying to release, you're not trying to get focus to get concentration by itself. You're doing that which is required to release these reflexes. That is what liberation is in the Buddhist. When the citta is released from the asava, this is liberation. So this is an important point. And where, where do you see these asava, these reflexes? Like that Iron Age fort, they're there all the time. But unless you step back and look at the whole picture, you don't see them. You're like, oh, it says. <laughs> because they become our identity. This is why we train. This is why we use community. This is why we use the multifaceted practices and processes and responsibilities and silences and meetings. A whole blend of it. Just the where you're getting pushed, where you're getting pressure, where you getting you know, you'll feel what those reflexes are about. And you've got something then go to the whole picture. Big field. Listen deeply. The intelligence will arise from that. That's the intelligence of the citta, the heart, and that's the one you want to bring forth. You get so far with your own willpower, and the rest of it comes from this source, which is beyond your willpower. So I'll offer these few words for your reflection this evening, and this is my, uh, uh, I like to say this is my expression of, of gratitude and the friendship. Uh, that's, what it, that's what I mean with when I'm saying these things. <laughs> so I wish to encourage everyone to cultivate and linger and reflect on the situation that we've been blessed with.